0: So for the past 11 weeks, we have been wrestling with the gospel of Mark, and I do mean wrestling. We have been wrestling with this gospel because Mark's gospel is a challenge. His purpose, he has two things he wants to make really clear. The first one is that Jesus is king, and I think he also makes it really clear as we read his gospel that following Jesus is hard. (laughs) And it's not hard because there's all these things that you have to do in order to be loved and accepted, right? You are loved because he's chosen to love you. That's not why it's hard. And it's not hard because the way of Jesus is like some miserable, stoic, reduced, impoverished life. It's hard because the way of Jesus is simply the opposite of the ways of this world. The way of Jesus just runs counter to the way we think everything is supposed to run. So we're gonna read a passage today. It comes at a moment in the scriptures, in the gospel. It comes right when the disciples need it. It comes when the disciples need reassurance. They're confused. They're anxious about their future. And I think this passage comes at the perfect time for us too because some of us might be confused, anxious about our future. And to be totally honest with you, we could use a little break from all the wrestling with Mark. Amen? (laughs) It's time for some encouragement, some peace, some love, some joy, some hope. If only there were a season designed to help us do just that. And there is, and it's finally here. So here's the plan for this Advent season. We want to look at the ways that Scripture proclaims the gospel message of peace, love, joy, and hope, but how Scripture has been doing that from the very start. See, I believe that Scripture is meant to be read Christologically, and that just means that we read it as if it is all pointing to Jesus, from beginning to end. I'm convinced that we can find him and we can find his gospel on every page from Genesis to Revelation, from the first to the last. So from now until Christmas Eve, we're gonna see how the Old Testament, the law, the prophets, the stories of God's interaction with the people of Israel, we're gonna see how it's all, always been pointing to Jesus. But in order to do that, to find all that in the Old Testament, today we're gonna start with a really incredible story from the New Testament. Just bear with me on this. This appears in Mark's gospel. It appears in Matthew's gospel as well, but I told you we're gonna take a break from Mark. So we're gonna read this from the gospel of Luke. Uh, This story is known as the transfiguration of Jesus. It's a well-known story, but y'all, it's strange. So listen to this. This comes from Luke chapter nine. I'm gonna read verses 28 through 36. And I'm reading the New Living Translation just for those of you who follow that. It says this, about eight days later, and quickly that's 8 days after Peter declared Jesus is the Messiah. So that's what comes just before this. Peter declares Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus gives his first prediction of his death and resurrection, and then we find this story. 8 days later, Jesus took Peter, John and James up on a mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was transformed and his clothes became dazzling white. If you turn to Matthew's gospel, in Matthew 17, he says it like this. He says, his appearance was changed. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as the light. Back to Luke's gospel, he says, suddenly two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared and began talking with Jesus. They were glorious to see, and they were speaking about his exodus from this world which was about to be fulfilled in Jerusalem. Peter and the others had fallen asleep, and when they woke up, they saw Jesus's glory and the two men standing there with him. As Moses and Elijah were starting to leave, Peter, not even knowing what he was saying, blurted out, Master, it's wonderful for us to be here. Let's make three shelters as memorials, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. But even as he was saying this, a cloud overshadowed them and terror gripped them as the cloud covered them. And then a voice from the cloud said, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice finished, Jesus was there alone and they didn't tell anyone at that time what they had seen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So some of you, many of you are familiar with Old Testament story, with Israel's story, but Maybe you don't fully understand just how much that Old Testament story has been woven into the passage I just read. So I just want to take a quick second to summarize it. Um, In Scripture, God often reveals himself to humans on mountaintops. Now these are these holy, transcendent moments. Today, I've heard some people call them thin places. Thin places. They're like these moments when the distance between us and God it's hardly noticeable. It's if He's right here. maybe some of you have had a mountaintop experience where God just became really real to you, whether you were actually on a mountain or not. The mountaintop moments are crucial to understanding both Moses and Elijah. The two men from a thousand years before Jesus from the Old Testament story standing right there next to Jesus. Uh, God chose Moses uh, to lead his people from slavery in Egypt. I mean, just tell me that when you think of Moses, you don't see Charlton Heston, right? I I think I do that. Every time I talk about Moses, it's okay. That joke never fails. Uh, God chose Moses to lead his people out of slavery in Egypt, to lead them through the wilderness, uh, to take them to the doorstep of the promised land. But when they first met, When God and Moses first meet, it's on a mountain called Mount Sinai. That's where God gives Moses God's own name, the holy name Yahweh. And that's the same mountain, Mount Sinai, where later on God is gonna give Moses the 10 commandments. Now Elijah, he comes later in the story. He's a prophet called by God to speak the truth, to give the word of the Lord to the people. And he heard God's voice often, But one time in particular, he heard it as a gentle, soft whisper, and he was sitting on a mountain. That mountain's called Mount Horeb. Now, what's interesting about the way that God interacts with both Moses and Elijah, especially in these stories, he meets them both in times of real trouble, in the midst of real suffering. He meets them on the mountaintop when they were in great need. Like both of these men, throughout their lives, they suffered rejection, they suffered persecution, persecution. Both of them in the end are vindicated by God. But after he meets them on the mountaintop, what does he do? He sends them right back down the mountain. He sends them down because there's work still to be done. Moses was sent to deliver the law, to show the people the way of God, the way to God. Elijah was sent to go and tell the people the truth. Standing on the mountain with Jesus that day, Peter, James, and John, they saw him standing next to a figure who represents the way and a figure who represents the truth. What is Jesus later going to tell his own disciples? I am the way, the truth, and the life. All of these Old Testament stories, the characters, the events themselves, they point to Jesus, but they're partial. Jesus is the fullness. In all of these stories, Jesus is always greater. Now, Peter was one of these disciples that Jesus and he invited along with them to witness this transfiguration. Peter's always there. Uh, Peter knew clearly. I think we know. He was aware that they were witnessing an event of biblical proportions, right? They were aware that that was Moses and Elijah. I don't know how they knew that. I don't know if they had any pictures. I mean, I don't know how they knew that, but they knew it. They were aware that they were witnessing something incredible, but in that moment, they really had no idea what was going on. They didn't know what they were seeing. Some some argue that Peter was so confused, he was so disoriented, that maybe he thought Jesus was dead. I mean, I told you Jesus just told him that the Son of Man must die. So some people say, maybe Peter thought that Jesus was dead because he's standing there with two men who have been gone a really long time. I mean, honestly, like, who knows? Maybe Peter thought they were all dead. I mean, he offers to build some memorials, some shelter so they can stay there for a while. But the gospel tells us that Peter, he had no idea what he was saying. He was confused. He was disoriented. He had no idea what he was saying in that moment. But it didn't stay that way. Because we know later on in the New Testament, Peter goes on to write letters to churches and in those letters, 30 years after the event happened, he remembers and he understands it really well. I want to read you how he describes it. This is from Second Peter chapter one. He says, we were not making up clever stories when we told you about the powerful coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We saw his majestic splendor with our own eyes when he received honor and glory from God the Father. The voice from the majestic glory of God said to him, this is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. We overheard for ourselves that voice from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. But he goes on to say this, and this is why we're using this story to get us ready to travel back to the Old Testament this Christmas season. He goes on to say, because of that experience, we have even greater confidence in the message that was proclaimed by the prophets of the Old Testament. And you must pay close attention to what they wrote because their words are like a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and Christ, the morning star, shines in all of your hearts. Honestly, I feel a little bit like Peter. Like, I spent the past few weeks thinking about this story, like reading everything I could get my hands on, asking for feedback from some of you. And at the risk of embarrassing him, if I can tell you, so uh, Sam Starrett, my dear friend who I get to spend a lot of time with, he told me that in all of his years, how long have you been a Presbyterian? Like 150 years? Yeah. <laughs> that in all of his years, he's never heard a sermon on the transfiguration. Pressure. <laughs> like I told him, we'd be doing it first week of Advent. He said, I'll be there. It's a lot of pressure. Like, I've been worried that today, like, I might be like Peter. I might just be talking without really knowing what I'm saying. This is a really difficult story. There is so much here. So I decided that the only thing to do is just try to focus on the small things. And as I did that, throughout it all, there's one word that jumped off the page, and I think it's really the only thing that matters for us today. And that one word is the word glory. They saw Jesus' Glory. <laughs> Moses had his own glory of God moment. It's this really sweet mountaintop moment. It's this time when Moses had actually done what he's told and God was pleased with him. So he offers, he says, Moses, I'll do pretty much anything you ask. And Exodus 33 tells us that Moses, what he asks for, he says, God, show me your glory. And he goes on to say this, the Lord said, okay, I will cause my goodness to pass in front of you. But he said, you can't see my face because no one can see my face and live. So when my glory passes by, I'm gonna put you in the cleft of a rock. I'm gonna cover you with my hand until I've passed. And then I'll remove my hand and you'll see my back, but my face must not be seen. It is a sweet story God is protecting and taking care of Moses because his glory is a weight that Moses couldn't bear. God's glory is a weight that no one can bear. But even in coming near it, even in seeing the glory of God just from his back, that glory changed Moses. After he had that interaction, his, his, Moses' face became bright. It was glowing. It was a reflection of the glory that just passed him by. It actually, Moses reflected God's glory so brightly that when Moses went down from the mountain, he had to wear a veil when he was around the people because the reflected glory of God was too much for them to bear. Remember what I told you, how Matthew's gospel says it. Jesus' appearance changed. His face shone like the sun. Y'all, is the sun a reflection or is the sun the source of the light? See, that's the difference. Jesus' face wasn't a reflection of God's glory. It was God's glory radiating from Jesus himself. Jesus is not reflecting the glory of God. He's the source of it. Hebrews is a New Testament letter later on near the end of the Bible. It says the Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. The glory of God is a weight that only Jesus can bear because Jesus is fully God. But you have to see the incredible mercy in this story. Like when the glory of God is revealed in the Old Testament, I just told you what happens. It's dangerous. It's a threat to human life because of the great chasm that exists between a holy God and unholy broken humans like us. We can't bear the weight. We can't survive it. But in the person of Jesus, God's glory has now been made accessible. Luke tells us directly that the disciples saw Jesus' glory. In Jesus, we can look at the glory of God and not die. In, in fact, the opposite is true. Unless we see the glory of God in Jesus, then death will ultimately have the final say and we can never truly live. But can you see the mercy and the grace? Can you see the reversal? Can you see what it means that God condescended And y'all, for Christians, the word condescended, when it relates to God, that is a good word. That means he came down from where he is to be with us. The good news that God condescended, he made himself less so that we can be more. And y'all, that's where the great plot twist in all of scripture comes in. That's the power of this Advent and Christmas story. In order to bridge the gap between God and humanity, What did ultimate glory decide to do? What was glory willing to do in order to bridge the gap between us and him? I want to tell you a story. It's written by Soren Kierkegaard. Many call it his parable of Christmas. Uh, But it's actually rooted in another Old Testament book, the, the Song of Solomon, which is a wildly inappropriate book. Like, if you decide to sit down over Christmas with your kids and grandkids and read the Bible, let's not start there, okay? It's wildly inappropriate. Rabbis wouldn't even teach the Song of Solomon to their kids until they were 18. Have I just guaranteed that they're all gonna go home and read the Song of Solomon? <laughs> See, it's a really good way to encourage Bible reading, right? Okay, good. But, but uh, Kierkegaard roots this parable um, in the Song of Solomon because it's a parable that reminds us Exactly what glory was willing to do so that he could be with the ones that he loves. So the story goes like this Uh, it's called The King and the Maiden. Kierkegaard writes this. He says, Suppose there was a king who loved a humble maiden. She was nobody, had no royal pedigree, no education, no standing in the royal court. She dressed in rags, she lived in a hovel, she lived the life of a peasant. Now the king, he was like no other king. Every statesman trembled before his power. But this mighty king was melted by love for a humble maiden. Why he should love her was a mystery. It's beyond explaining. But love her he did. In fact, he couldn't stop loving her. The problem is how could he declare his love for her? If he brought her to the palace, if he crowned her head with jewels, if he clothed her body in royal robes, surely she wouldn't resist. No one dared resist him. He's just too powerful. But would she love him in return? Or would she live maybe even in fear? Would she maybe live her life nursing a private grief for the life that she left behind? If he rode to her forest cottage in his royal carriage with armed escorts waving bright banners, that would overwhelm her too. This poor peasant girl would have no power to resist. She would have no choice. She would have to become the queen. But this king didn't want a cringing subject who was there because she had to be. He wanted a lover, an equal, because it is only in love that the unequal are made equal. He wanted her to forget that he was the king and she was a humble maiden. He wanted to let that love cross the gulf between them. The problem is that power, even unlimited power, it can't do everything. And the one thing it can't do is it can't demand love in return. So the king was convinced he couldn't elevate the maiden without crushing her freedom. So he resolved instead to descend himself. So one day the king rose, he took off his crown, he relinquished his scepter, laid aside his royal robes, and took upon himself the life of a peasant. He dressed himself in rags, he scratched out a living in the dirt, groveled for food, dwelt in a hovel of his own. He didn't just take on the outward appearance of a servant, he became a servant, it was his actual life, his true nature, his actual burden for others. He became as ragged as the one he loved so that one day she might choose to be his forever. It was the only way. His raggedness became the very signature of his presence. All that needed to happen was that one day they meet and she has the opportunity to make her choice. The glory of God is a weight that only Jesus can bear because he's fully God. But the one who is fully God, the glory of God, he is also fully human, born of Mary, suffered and died here on earth so that we can be with him forever, so that we might choose to be with him forever. Jesus, in all of his glory, descended from the throne of heaven to be here in the muck and the mud with us. I mean, what kind of glory is this? It's a condescending glory, and that's really good news, because it means that God is here with us. Somebody after the 9:30 came up to me and said, um, "You didn't tell us how the parable ends." That's the point of a parable. It doesn't have an ending. You have to put yourself in that story and decide. When that king who has descended into the muck and the mud, when he introduces himself to you, will you recognize him? And will you choose to love him in return? So we're left to ask. um, We've heard this incredible story of the transfiguration of Jesus, this complicated, confusing story. So now what? What like what do we do with it when we leave here today? How does the transfiguration of Jesus change the way that we live now? Well, I think there's a couple things from this story itself, and then also from the story that follows that I'm going to read you quickly in just a second. And the first thing is that if we're the disciples in the story, like Peter, James, and John, then we look at what they did. At least we look at what they did right. And what we know is that Peter, James, and John they followed Jesus to the mountain together, and they did it as a community. It's like the first Christian small group right there in Luke chapter nine. They joined with him in community. They followed him up to the mountain. They joined Jesus in prayer. And then we know that they listened to the command from God when he said, this is my son, listen to him. We know that they listened to him because we are here today. Eventually they got it right. They did what they were told. Y'all, we are meant to experience God in community, not alone Anybody who thinks that they can have a relationship with Jesus by themselves without his body, you're fooling yourselves. That idea of an individual faith in God is foreign to scripture. It's foreign to Christianity. It makes no sense. We are his body. How can you have a relationship with Jesus without his body? For the past few weeks, I've been making the argument that participating in the life of the church, y'all, it can't just be one among all the other things that we do in our life. It can't be something that we do only when it's convenient. Being a part of the body of Christ, it's a commitment, but I'm telling you, it matters because the glory of Jesus is experienced in community. And sometimes in really profound ways, like in those thin places where it seems like he's right next to us. Sometimes that's during communion or during a baptism. Oftentimes it's in the music. It's in our prayers. It's when we hear the gospel read and preached. But that's not the only place we experience the glory of Jesus in community. And that leads us to the second thing. But to understand it, I just have to read you quickly one more story. I'm gonna paraphrase it from the message so that we just get the big picture. And I'm reading you the story because in every gospel, it follows the transfiguration. In every gospel, after they tell the transfiguration of Jesus, they immediately tell this next story and there's a reason for that. It says that when they came down off the mountain the next day, A huge crowd was there to meet them. And a man called out from the crowd, please, please, teacher, look at my son. He's my only child. Often a spirit seizes him. Suddenly he's screaming. He's thrown into convulsions. His mouth is foaming. And then it beats him black and blue before it leaves. So Jesus said, bring your son to me. And while he was coming, the demon slammed him to the ground and threw him into convulsions. So Jesus stepped in and ordered the foul spirit gone, healed the boy, and handed him back to his father. And they all shook their heads, astonished at God's majestic greatness. Did you notice that last part? This time when Jesus healed, what did they notice? Yeah, not just the healing, they noticed God's majestic greatness in the work that Jesus had done. But here's the point. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all connect this story to the one that came before, to the glory of Jesus shining on the mountaintop for a reason. And it's to remind us that the glory of Jesus doesn't just rest on the mountaintop. It descends back into the real world with us. After God met Moses and Elijah on the mountaintop, where did they go next? Back into the world because there's work to do. When Peter was on the mountain, what he saw was good. He didn't understand it, but he thought it was good, and he just wanted to stay there. Let's build houses. Let's stay here. This is good. There's comfort and hope in these thin places. The feeling on that mountaintop, if you've had it, you understand. You never want it to end, but it does. I, just want, I want to tell you really quickly. Uh, in April of 2004, Benjamin was born, and you guys all know this story. He was born with this heart defect, right? Well, That same month, sorry, he was born in May, not April. Sorry, okay, he's born in May now. But in April of 2004, I just took the job to be the youth director here at the church. A month later, my kid's born with a heart defect, goes into heart failure in my arms three weeks later. We take him to the hospital. You know what I had to do two weeks after that? I had to take the high school kids on a mission trip. And I get there late because I was in the hospital, so I flew in, and I get there in the middle of the week, And I get there in a moment when they were in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and they had taken uh, the Sky Tram up to the top of the mountain. And we sat literally on a mountaintop and watched the sunset as these high school students prayed over me for what I was going through with my son. A transformative moment that gave me the strength to go back and face what I had to face because guess what, I couldn't stay up there forever. We had to go back down the mountain because we had work to do in New Mexico and I had work to do back home. Jesus takes his disciples back down the mountain and the work continues just as it was before. Again, at the risk of embarrassing him, Sam wrote me earlier this week he said, The next day they're off the mountain and back to the old grind as if nothing had happened at all. (laughs) He's got a point. I don't know if it was as if nothing had happened. I really think Peter, James, and John were changed by this experience, but one thing is clear it was back to the old grind. Though the glory of Jesus is not found only on the mountaintops, it's also with us in the valleys. The glory of God is experienced in service, in the way we serve and love one another, our neighbors, our world, in our simple witness to the truth of who Jesus is and how he's transforming our lives. So through reading all this over the past couple weeks, what this has come to me is what I think is a profound truth, that the mountaintop is always a rest stop for the ministry that comes next. Like until Jesus finally returns, until he brings his kingdom in all of its fullness, once and for all, the mountaintop is always a rest stop for what comes next. One author says it like this, he says we should actually be a little weary and wary when we come home from a great worship service or when we rise from a time of prayer in which God has seemed very close and his love real and powerful. We should be wary because these things are never given for their own sake. They're given so that we are equipped by them and God can then use us with his needy world. There is peace, love, joy, and hope for us and for this world. The glory of Jesus will one day shine over all creation. Advent is a season when we remember the birth of Jesus And now anticipate his return, returning to make all things new. But in the waiting, until then, it seems as a scripture is telling us that the way that peace, love, joy, and hope, the way it makes its way into our broken world, that the way that Christ descends into the world today, at least in part, it's through you, it's through his body. And y'all, like, what a gift. Like, what a gift. We get to be the hands and feet of Jesus. The one who radiates the glory of God, we get to be his body. We get to experience the glory of Jesus here in this place. And as we go and serve one another, as we love our community and our world, we get to be the place where people find peace, love, joy, and hope. What a gift. Now, the church doesn't always look that way. But we have the power within us to do it. We have the power within us to follow Christ, to think less of ourselves, to think more of him, to think more of others. Someone had said the reason the way of Jesus is difficult is because it's the form of a cross. That it points upward at God first, then it points outward at everyone around us. Yes, we are on it, but we are not the point. The point is everyone around us. That our call is not to put ourselves first, but to put God and others first. That's difficult, but that is the way this world will experience the peace, the love, the joy, and the hope of Christ, the glory of Christ, even as they encounter us until the day he returns. Isn't that good news? Man, I'm really not hearing you. (laughs) Isn't that good news? So are y'all ready to get to work? Y'all know this is what we're here to do, right? We're here to be equipped and encouraged to go out and do the work. To be the place where our neighbors find peace, love, joy, and hope and a glimpse of the glory of Jesus. Let's pray. It's overwhelming that you would choose to use people like us to do anything at all, but you have. So Father, this week I just pray as, we, as I think about a week ago setting up all the decorations here in this room. I'm just reminded that as beautiful as it is, as comforted as I feel every time I walk into this place, especially at Advent, they're just symbols. And they're symbols pointing to a greater truth. That you left your throne to be with us. To show us the way. And then to give us the keys to put us in charge to be peace, love, joy, and hope for the world around us. Give us the courage and the strength to trust you and to actually go and do it. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said,